7 through 9. All right, Obadiah, and verse 7 is where we'll begin our reading this evening. All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. We find here again in Obadiah, as we've studied over the past uh, several weeks, that the prophecy of Obadiah is unique in that first, it is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It is the shortest of the minor prophets. And again, I mentioned to you before and remind you again that the uh, category of minor prophets has nothing to do with the message of the prophets. It has to do with the brevity or the length of the book itself. And so the minor prophets are referred to as minor prophets due to, the, due to their, their brevity, not due to the message. Second, it's unique in that its message of judgment is primarily focused on one people group, and that is the people of Edom, which of course are Esau's descendants. However, there is also a commonality with other prophecies which is exhibited within Obadiah. Number one, the declared judgment of God is never present without the demonstration of God's grace and His mercy. Now think about this for a moment. Anytime you look through Scripture, you will find that where God's judgment is declared and God's wrath has been demonstrated, there is also, in contrast, a demonstration of God's grace and His mercy and His love. And we have that there for a reason, obviously, because we know that God's wrath is real and that men abide under His wrath. But we also know in contrast to His wrath, there are those who have received of the grace and mercy of God through the provision He's made for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, the commonality, another commonality, is that the overall message demonstrates how God's purpose will not be frustrated, but He will faithfully fulfill His plan despite the opposition. So there will always be opposition against the purpose and plan of God, but God will faithfully fulfill that purpose and plan. His plan will not be frustrated, meaning it will not be hindered, it will not be thwarted. And we understand too, if you understand the teaching of Scripture, again, I want to remind you of this, that that God does not live in time and that time has been provided for us. So we live in time and it's through the language of time, even as Scripture speaks, that we have an understanding of the purpose and plan of God as it would unfold. But we recognize that God is not bound nor limited in and by time. And so when we, when we speak of time and the unfolding of God's plan, we understand that as far as God is concerned, His plan is already perfected and fulfilled. It is. As far as we are concerned, it's continually unfolding and being revealed, but yet that's not the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is it's already done. God not only knows the end from the beginning, but he also is living in the present now. And so there is no yesterday with God. There is no tomorrow with God. So when we say God's plan will not be frustrated, it can't be frustrated. 
It cannot be hindered because it's, an, it's already a fulfilled plan. I believe you find that very clearly as well demonstrated when you look into the uh, book of Romans and you see where the Scripture refers to the fact that, of course, um, that, that the past tense is used concerning those whom he foreknew. He also did uh, predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, those whom he uh, called, he glorified, justified, or justified, glorified, called, and, and we find all those are past tense uh, verbs that are being used, meaning it's, it's something that's already done. And so it is being understood in time and realized in time, but it's not something that is literally being um, completed in time, if you will. It's just being revealed in time as it has been perfectly completed in eternity if we can understand that. So God speaks in, in language of time for our understanding that we have a better understanding of what is really taking place or has taken place. So as we've discovered within our previous studies, verses 3 and 4 of this text are key to understanding the wickedness of the people of Edom upon whom the Lord's judgment is declared. Look at verses 3 and 4 again with me. Um, we didn't read these tonight, but from last week. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Thou that ex- though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. The people were presumptuous, and they allowed their arrogance and self-confidence to give them a false hope of being invincible, and that's what's being spoken of here within this text. Remember, these are the people of Esau. This is Edom. Now, now remember something. Unlike the Gentiles, Esau is the offspring of Isaac. Isaac, remember Isaac and Rebekah, what? They birthed Jacob and Esau, and so Esau is not just some Gentile nation. Edom are actually the descendants of Esau, which is, of course, to Isaac and to Jacob in the sense that Esau was Jacob's brother. And so these people had become presumptuous and they allowed their own arrogance and self-confidence to, to give them this false sense of security that is really non-existent. And so no one can tear us down. We are a great people, mighty, we are strong, we are invincible. But that's just not the case. Within verses 5 and 6, Obadiah begins to explain the extent of the judgment of God upon Edom. As we discovered during our last study, Obadiah himself, as God's messenger of judgment upon Edom, was really overwhelmed by the extent of God's judgment. In verse 5 he said, If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? And notice the exclamation point there. He's making an exclamatory statement. He's saying, oh, you are cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? Now, again, I told you last week that these terms which are used describe, they're not synonymous, and thieves and robbers. They describe the progression of this judgment of God upon Edom. The, the, the noun thieves refers to those who steal and deceive, and we'll see that further in the text, while the noun robbers refer to those who devastate, who deal violently with the, the others, and those who destroy. And so while you had Thieves who would deceive and they would steal underhandedly, if you will. Then you had these robbers who would come in and just absolutely destroy. And Obadiah then exclaimed, how art thou cut off? And the statement really says all that needs to be said. The term cut off means destroyed. So Edom would be left without any provision, without any remnants, and without any hope or help. And if you don't believe that, again, let's just turn there one more time. Look at Malachi, because as you know, in the book of Malachi, uh, at, Paul quotes in Acts chapter 9 from the book of Malachi, chapter 1, when he says in Acts 9 concerning Jacob and Esau, and he says, uh, 
that uh, it was said of the elder, or said that the elder shall serve the younger, and then it says, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And that was God speaking. Neither one having done good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. It was said of the younger, elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And again, to understand what is truly being stated there, which has everything to do with Obadiah's prophecy, go to Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. So you see Obadiah's prophecy that God was going to utterly destroy Edom is not just found in Obadiah. It's found in Jeremiah. It's found in Obadiah. Paul references it in Acts 9, quoting Malachi 1, where the scripture prophesies as well that Edom would be absolutely utterly destroyed and that they would claim in their arrogance and ignorance and in their pride and their presumptuous spirit that they would rise up and they would rebuild. And God says, oh yeah, you can rise and rebuild, but I'm going to tear down. And you will be called the border of wickedness and also the people whom the Lord hath indignation against forever. Now it says indignation forever. The word indignation here literally means cursed. It says that God cursed them forever. And so Obadiah's prophecy makes a whole lot more sense when you understand God's view towards Esau, towards Edom. And so while they would struggle and try to build and they would be filled with their pride and say things such as, we'll rebuild, we'll prosper, God says, no, you won't. You may think that's what you'll do, and it may look like you may be excelling in something, but I'm going to tear you down because you're cursed forever. How foolish it is for men to think that they are invincible. How foolish it is for countries or nations to think that they are invincible. Again, I remind you of this truth, which is stressed in Obadiah's prophecy. Let's look at it again. Look at the last verse of Obadiah, verse 21. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So while Esau is saying, we'll build, we'll rise, we'll maintain, we'll prosper, we're being reminded as well that while God cursed Edom and he said, I'll utterly destroy them, he says, there's one kingdom that will last. There is one kingdom that will stand the test of time and eternity. There is one kingdom that shall not fail. And what is that kingdom? The kingdom of our God and of his Christ. There's only one kingdom that's going to endure. So it's foolish for men to ever think, whether it be a country, a nation of years past, a city, a a regime, or whether it be a nation present, including ours, that would think that that we're invincible or that a people are invincible. And by the way, let me remind you of something here. I want to add this in to help clarify something. If you remember what Peter speaks of, Peter speaks how that we are a peculiar people. We are a, a, a holy people and a peculiar nation. Remember when he says that? And today it seems as though there's this, this over the past several years, there's been this uh, propagation of this idea that uh, of what's referred to as Christian nationalism, as though God is working through America, for instance, right? And Americans think that invincible. I mean, really, that is somewhat of a mindset that exists. And yet the fact of the matter is that God is not working with nations in that respect. He's working with individuals he has redeemed, making them part of his church, which he then says is a holy and peculiar people and nation. He's made us to be that nation he's working with as the body of Christ, not as a 
a people who live within a certain boundary of land. And it's important that you recognize that because there's only one kingdom that's going to last. Look, all of these things that we see, all these things that we know, they will perish, they will be destroyed, but one thing will endure, and that is the kingdom of Christ. And who makes up that kingdom? The redeemed. Those whom he has redeemed. Verse 6, how are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? Searched out, as we saw, implies ransacked or pillaged. So what Obadiah is saying is the things of Esau have been ransacked. And sought up means to be grazed bare. So he's saying it's as though you know, the cattle comes through and completely wipe out the entire landscape, leaving nothing behind but just sand and dirt. He's saying they've been grazed bare. There's nothing of value here anymore. So within the following verses of Obadiah's prophecy, Obadiah explains how his prophecy stated in verse 5, when we read again, if thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Once again, the thieves refer to those who deceive, and robbers refer to those who destroy. Notice as well in verse 6 what he says. Um, I'm sorry, in the latter part of verse 5. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not have some grapes? And we saw last week, I don't want to belabor this point, but we saw last week where the, the statement Obadiah is making is that if someone came to rob out of necessity because they had a need, Someone may steal you know, a loaf of bread. Someone may steal uh, you know, food out of your fridge. Someone may steal a few valuables they see and then head out because it's something that will help sustain them. Not the or the great gatherers, such as even when you think of, again, Ruth, uh, the Moabitess in the, in the field of Boaz. Remember when she was harvesting and, and Boaz tells those who are harvesting, he sees Bo, uh, Ruth and he says, hey, leave handfuls of purpose for her. Leave handfuls that she may glean, not just pick up scraps, but that she'll have handfuls, she'll have plenty to take with her. And the, the emphasis Obadiah is making is, okay, if someone were really in need, such as a thief who, who feels as though if I'm going to live, I've got to steal food, or if I'm going to live, I have to steal something of value, though that's sin and wrong, he's saying, would they not just take what they felt was needed and then leave the rest behind? And the great gatherers, would they not still be merciful in a sense to leave something behind for people who come behind that they as well might have? But he says, not in this case. The thieves are going to deceive ultimately, and the robbers are going to absolutely destroy. They're going to leave nothing behind. And this is God's judgment upon Edom. Obadiah explains what the fall of Edom would look like when Edom fell. And what's interesting is that even with this knowledge of what was going to be, Edom remained helpless to do anything to prevent the inevitable from taking place. There's nothing they can do to change this. Verse 7, All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat Thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Now we see this connection between verse 5 and the beginning of verse 7. Notice again, verse 7. All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The confederacy refers to those with whom Eden had made a covenant, a contract, or agreement. And Edom had made alliances with other nations, with other people. And yet, when they sought help from those who were their allies, when Edom sought help from them, they found no help. They left them destitute. They left them unaided. Verse 7 goes on to say, The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. Remember we saw where the word thieves, the noun thieves literally means those who deceive. And look at what he says in verse 7 now. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee. 
and prevailed against thee. Those who were friendly with Edom deceived or tricked Edom and then overpowered them. Then verse 7c, we see, he says, they that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. The ones who had fellowshiped, remember eating bread, what this is seeing, of course, is you find throughout Scripture, obviously, when there was a time of eating, when they would gather, this has to do with actual genuine fellowship or as would, what would appear to be fellowship. So they shared in each other's meals. They shared in each other's provision. And he's saying here that those who ate your bread, they've laid a wound under thee. So those who had posed as Edom's friends, those who had shared meals with them, those who had fellowshiped with them, now laid a snare for Edom. David referred to such betrayal in Psalms, 50, or Psalms 41. Psalm 41, 9 says, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. David's saying, these are people who I trusted. These are people who, who I had fellowship with, and yet they raised up their heel against me. Now they are opposed to me. They are against me. They've deceived me. Then the latter part of verse 7 says this, there is none understanding in him. Obadiah will further expound upon this statement in the next verse, that is verse 8. However, we see in Jeremiah's prophecy a further explanation, which is declared within three questions that are asked. In Jeremiah 49, 7, here's what it says. Concerning Edom, thus saith the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Teman? That's a city of Edom. Is counsel perished from the prudent? And the third question, is their wisdom vanished? These questions are actually statements of fact concerning Edom. In their pride and in their arrogance, they had become fools. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Whether you're talking about a nation, whether you're talking about a world, whether you're talking just unbelievers in general, or even when you're talking about the church. Listen, the moment the church begins to become proud and arrogant in anything that they do or anything that they are apart from that which God has provided in Jesus Christ, they show themselves to act in a very foolish manner. What can we boast in other than Jesus? Nothing. Nothing. The Lord furthermore declares that he would destroy the wise men. Look at verse 8. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom? and understanding out of the mount of Esau. So when you look at verse 7, he says there is none understanding in him. Verse 8 is explaining that. Jeremiah 49 verse 7 explains that through the three questions. Is wisdom no more in Teman, a city of Edom again? Is counsel perished from the prudent? Is their wisdom vanished? And then verse 8, shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the mount of Esau? The wise refers to, again, these are, these are not synonymous statements. They actually have distinct attributes or, or definition and meaning. The wise refers to the men who were skilled and experienced, while understanding refers to the skill and cleverness or ingenuity itself. So he's saying that the, shall I not in that day even destroy the wise men? Shall I not remove those who are skilled and those who are experienced from the people of Edom so that they are left without any skilled men, without any experienced men, without anyone who's able to do what must be done to survive and to exist. But then he goes further and says, and understanding. And understanding out of the Mount of Esau. So the wise to the men who were skilled and experienced, while the understanding refers to the actual skill, 
the cleverness and ingenuity. Not the men, but the cleverness and ingenuity itself. So the Lord would utterly destroy the ability for the people to rise up. How would he do that? By removing their wise, by removing their experienced and skillful men, and therefore removing the ingenuity of the people to restore themselves to a people of status. God was not going to allow it to be. You remember, well, think about like even the, the Tower of Babel, if you recall. At the Tower of Babel, the Lord, of course, separated the people. And I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to put you on the spot, okay? Why did God, be careful in your answer, why did God, now no one will answer. I know how this goes. Why did God disperse and confound the language and disperse the people? Because God had commanded that the people go out, be fruitful, and multiply the earth. Remember, replenish the earth. And what were the people doing? They were centered in one area, raising themselves up in pride. Was God fearful that they were going to reach heaven by building a tower? Of course not. He didn't disperse them because he is saying, oh, I'm really scared if I don't take a step here and do something, then they're going to reach up into heaven and take my throne. Of course not. What happened was they were disobedient and rebellious against the very thing God had commanded them to do. And God says, oh, you will do that I commanded you to do. And how did he accomplish that? He so chose to accomplish it by confusing their language so that they could not understand each other. They could no longer work together. And they had different languages among different groups now, which then went out into different parts of the world and established societies. Isn't that what God told them to do? That's exactly what he told them to do. Did the people do what God told them to do? Yes. But they didn't do it because they willingly obeyed. They did it because God was going to fulfill his purpose just as he declared, and this was the means by which he would do it despite the rebellion and resistance of the people. So in this case with Edom, of course, you have wise men, skilled men, experienced men, and you have ingenuity and cleverness, and God says, okay, I'm going to destroy you. You will not rise up, and here's how I'm going to make certain that's true. I'll remove the wisdom. I'll remove the understanding. I'll remove the skilled men. I'll remove the experienced men, and you're left to yourself. When I was in Cambodia, in 2016, Pilot took me to what they refer to, and you may know this historically, the Killing Fields. And the Killing Fields is a place in Cambodia in which the Cambodian people were murdered by what was referred to as the Pol Pot regime. Pol Pot, of course, was a dictator, and um, he, was, he, he came up during the time of, of the wars and things, and he, he really obliterated his people in reality. And Pol Pot was, of course, being a political leader, he was a political leader of the communist regime known as the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. And this was during the time of 1975 to 1979. But during his dictatorship, within these four, basically four or five years of his, of his communistic and, and uh, his dictatorship and rule, one and a half to two million Cambodians were killed by either starvation, execution, and or neglect. And one of Pol Pot's strategies was that he took the educated... He took the doctors, the teachers, the, the uh, lawyers, attorneys, if you will, anyone with any skill or, or real education, and, and people of that, of that group, and he would kill them. He would use them under, under forced labor. He would starve them, execute them, whatever. And the purpose of his strategy, 
it was really to remove any resistance to his autocracy. And so the result of Pol Pot's actions set the country of Cambodia back even to this day. If you were to go to Cambodia, it's a third world country, and if you were to go to Cambodia, they are so backwards in their technology. I mean, they have technology, but it is so backwards compared to where they would have been had Pol Pot not utterly ruined them by his murdering of millions of educated skilled, experienced people. And so the people of Cambodia to this day still suffer and are set back politically, monetarily, and academically by Pol Pot's tyranny. And it's quite evident if you go and visit. And this is exactly what God declared he would do to Edom. I'm going to take away your wisdom I'm going to take away the skill. I'm going to take away the experienced people. I'm going to take away the ingenuity. And, and he's kind of saying, now, then I'll leave you to yourself in that respect, and you will fail. You will not prosper. Verse 9. And thy mighty men, O Timon, shall be dismayed, to the end that every one of Mount Esau may be cut off by slaughter. The mighty men referred to those who were the heroes. These were the champions. Obadiah declares that God would cause them to become dismayed. This meant that they would be shattered and they would be filled with terror. And this would have such an effect upon the men that Esau would be slaughtered. Not Esau the man, Esau the people, Edom, would be slaughtered. In other words, Edom could not survive the judgment of God. God's anger, God's wrath was upon Edom. And the question again would be asked, who can stand against the Lord? Look how foolish it is. Let me, let me, let me show you something here of, of tremendous importance. Just as Edom, Edom was under the wrath of God, look, look at Romans chapter 2 quickly. <clears throat> Romans chapter 2, and let's look at verse 5. Well, actually, let's go up to verse uh, Verse 3. Actually, let's go to verse 2. <laughs> just keep backing up. Let's just start at verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art, thou that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same things. Now, this isn't talking about righteous judgment. This is talking about, of course, self-righteous judgment. He goes on to say, because they say, he says, you do the same things. Then he says, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Now look at verse 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent or unrepentant heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Do you see what he says here? You treasured up the wrath of God to be revealed in the righteous day of judgment. I've shared with you the analogy of this. I think a great illustration of this, especially being people who live in Florida and who see rain showers quite frequently, that you look across the sky and all of a sudden there's a cloud that's coming in 
and it, it looks like it's a dark cloud, dark group of clouds, if you will, and they start coming in, and it gets darker and darker and darker and darker. And while it's accumulating all of that moisture and all that water, eventually, at some point, as we would say here, the bottom falls out. And when the bottom falls out, nothing's going to prevent that rain from coming down. It started, it's here, and so it is. And so we see this truth being conveyed in Romans 2, 5, when Paul wrote and said that you treasured up the wrath of God. That day by day, it's as though that cloud is just getting darker and heavier and darker. And one day, if God does not intervene, if God does not remove you out from under His wrath through His provision in Christ, through belief and rest and trusting in Jesus, then the wrath of God pours out eternally upon those who reject and do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. So who can stand against the judgment of God? No one can. In Nahum chapter 1, 2, 6, I read this last week. I want to read it again because it's so fitting to this passage we're looking at concerning Edom. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel, the flower of Lebanon, languisheth. The mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. You recall the, 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 the verse that follows that? Last week we saw this, and I shared this with you just a moment ago. It's interesting that the next verse, after all that's just been said, here's what verse 7 says. The Lord is good. Now, that sounds a little strange to follow up after all of that, doesn't it? Who can stand in his indignation? Who can stand before his judgment? Who can stand before the Lord? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Again, when you see God's wrath and you see God's judgment and you see God executing that judgment and wrath upon the wicked, you are the goodness and grace and mercy of God that is extended and experienced by those who know the Lord and trust and rest in him. While he is to be feared by the wicked, by those who know not the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sense of they should be scared of him, he is to be loved and reverenced by those who are his children. And so we are reminded through Obadiah again that God's judgment is real and certain and no man shall escape it apart from the redemption provided in Jesus Christ. Are reminded with Obadiah that even when he makes these exclamatory remarks that he does, how thou art cut off, how you're sought out, searched and sought out, he says, that in making those statements, it's as though Obadiah with Paul, when Paul says in his epistles, of course, as we've just recently have studied through the book of Philippians, where Paul explains that there are those who, of course, are are going to perish, and those who are under the judgment of God. But yeah, he says, I've warned you of these before, and now I tell you again, weeping. 
Paul, Paul sensed the truth and reality of the severity of the judgment of God, and he himself wept over those who would experience such judgment. In their ignorance and in their arrogance, they could not understand the severity and weight of the judgment of God upon which they were under his wrath. But Paul could. Paul could have an understanding of that because he knew the goodness of God and the love and mercy of God. And Paul had, had revealed to him on the road to Damascus the severity of God's wrath and judgment that he was under. And hence, of course, through redemption, he then experienced the grace and love and mercy of the same God upon whose wrath he had been under just moments ago. And so while men do not understand the severity of the wrath and judgment of God, God's judgment nonetheless is inescapable. And God's judgment is real and certain, and no one's going to wiggle their way out of this. There is one provision made for us by which we are not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ and Christ alone. So you have the judgment and the wrath of God upon which all men are either under or have been under. And then you have the grace, love, and mercy of God demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. And while we have been redeemed, if you know Christ, you are in the love and grace and mercy of God as provided in Christ. Might I remind you that it is nothing of your own doing by which you are no longer under his wrath. It is only because of grace, something that is unmerited the favor of God, that now you know his love and mercy. Hence, as we consider those who remain under his wrath, should we not do so with a burning desire to declare and proclaim the gospel, the good news of Christ, reminding them of the wrath of God, we are reminded of as well that we would still be under were it not for this grace for which God has removed us out from under his wrath. So the judgment of God, the wrath of God is absolute, it is certain, and it is perfect, and it is holy, and it is just. But might I remind you as well that God is gracious, and He is merciful, and He is long-suffering, and He's slow to anger, as the Scripture says, we just read a moment ago. He is slow to anger. He's good. The Lord is good. Again, Nahum 1-7, I find that so interesting, or, or 6, whichever chapter it was, I can't recall now, but you find it in verse 6. And the previous, how that this wrath and judgment, God is furious and he destroys and no one can stand in his presence. And the next statement, the Lord is good. <laughs> but he is. He is good to those who know him. And he is to be feared for those who don't. But we need to remember that we were under that same judgment and wrath. Were we not? But we've received of the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you.